I'd like to begin with a trigger warning. <laughs> Beware. Our panelists tonight are going to address the holy trinity of campus politics, race, gender, and identity. If you feel threatened by these subjects, <laughs> we don't have any counseling for you, we don't have any happy puppies, and we don't have, um, the CIS believes in civilized but robust debate. This ain't a safe space. Now, these days, every story seems to be the same story. Consider, for example, Bettina Arndt, who conveniently is in the first row. Bettina was initially denied the opportunity to speak at Melbourne's La Trobe University because, this is the important part of the story, because her views on sexual violence on campus did not, and this is a quote from the newspaper, align with the university's views. Apparently, the university has official views on social issues. Now, those of you who know Bettina will not be surprised to learn that she's forced them down, and she is, in fact, going to speak at the university next week. Unfortunately, not everyone has been this successful. Uh, Brandeis University in Massachusetts withdrew an honorary degree they had awarded to the Somali campaigner for women's rights, Ayan Hersi Ali, and refused her permission to speak on campus. The university said her words would be hurtful and dangerous to students. <laughs> Closer to home, Chinese international students at the University of Newcastle, right up the road, complained that a lecturer had insulted them because he implied that Taiwan might be an independent country. Mindful of the high fees that international students uh, pay, uh, he was whisked off and quickly re-educated and sent back to make a groveling apology for his transgression. A lecturer at Sydney University met the same fate when he showed international students a map that depicted territories claimed by China as actually being part of India. In his apology, he promised to buy a new map. <laughs> at the National University of Ireland, Alan Johnson attempted to argue against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, and he was met with a din of profanity and protest and literally driven from campus. And this is my new addition to this. You haven't heard this yet, Tom, but in England, London South Bank University, I never heard of it, but <laughs> apparently it's a university, has instituted a ban on blasphemy in 2018, a ban on blasphemy. Now, none of this should be surprising. Washington's uh, Brookings Institution reports that 50% of university students believe that it's acceptable to disrupt speakers by shouting and making noise, and 19% go so far as to condone violence in order to silence speakers whose views they find objectionable. And this is not just theoretical. In Connecticut, a sociologist, Charles Murray, who has spoken here at the CIS, was physically attacked when he tried to speak to some students, and an academic who was accompanying him wound up in hospital or seriously injured. Ironically, the topic that Murray wanted to talk to the students about was the evils of polarized social division. <laughs> it sometimes seems that universities 
are no longer institutions of inquiry, but sort of cushy, soft, safe spaces where students must be protected from any challenging idea. I ask you, is that the proper role of universities? Is higher education at risk? These are the questions that we've assembled an eminent panel to discuss tonight. Um, I'm going to introduce them to you in a moment, but let me first tell you how it's going to work. The format for the event, each of our three speakers is going to speak for 10 minutes, and that will be followed by a brief discussion up here on the stage, and then it'll be your turn to ask questions and participate in debate. Uh, the event will end at 7.30 when the speakers will join you for some refreshments and informal chat. One last thing. This is a phone. Turn it off, right? <laughs> or at least silence it. Everyone's going to stare at you and they're going to hate you, so turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Let me introduce our first speaker. Lindsay Shepard is a postgraduate student and teaching assistant at Canada's Wilfrid Laurier University. Her Orwellian experience with her university's thought police has made her an international symbol for free speech. Some of you may have seen Lindsay on the Q&A show last Monday night, and we're delighted to have her with us tonight. Lindsay, I call on you to begin the proceedings. All right, hello everyone. Um, so, last November and December, I was involved in a controversy. And um, I'm gonna explain that controversy just in detail so that before we get to the Q&A and discussion and all that, it um, all makes sense. Um, okay, so as mentioned, I am a graduate student at Wilfrid Laurier University, and I was also a teaching assistant. And I was a teaching assistant in the Department of Communication. I was teaching a course called Canadian Communication in Context, CS 101. Um, and every week we had a topic or a theme that we were going to address. And so sometimes it would be punctuation, sometimes style and language, uh, APA formatting, et cetera. This particular week it was grammar. And so instead of just going over the do's and don'ts and you know, kind of the dry material as to grammar, I also wanted to address how something like grammar can be actually a politicized issue. And to demonstrate this, um, I chose to play some video footage from public television in my province, Ontario. Um, from a show called The Agenda with Steve Pakin, highly regarded show in Canada. Um, and on this panel, um, the footage that I showed was Jordan Peterson. Uh, has anyone heard of him? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, and then there was also another professor of transgender studies, Nicholas Matt. So the context of this was Bill C-16, and it's a law in Canada that, um, that passed, and Jordan Peterson saw it as compelling uh, gender-neutral pronoun use, and therefore he, he refused to use those pronouns. Um, but Nicholas Matt, the other professor, was arguing, well, you know, these pronouns are related to uh, a trans student's or non-binary student's dignity, so it's better to just use them. Um, and so I showed um, them in conversation to my class. We had a discussion about it. Um, the discussion, no one left the room, no one cried, no one yelled. Uh, I thought it went quite normal, um, and I took took a neutral approach to the clip that I showed, so I didn't denounce Peterson's views. I didn't feel the need to do that. I also just don't denounce them. Uh, I think he's added immensely to public conversation, not only in Canada, but internationally. Um, 
so we talked about, you know, this issue. Some people said that they agree with Peterson. Some people agreed with Matt. Um, but, the, but the conversation was good. However, um, the next week, I got an email saying that uh, I had to come into a meeting with the professor of the course, as well as the program coordinator for my master's degree, and a diversity and equity official. And that will become very relevant. <laughs> um, and so I was told uh, in this meeting that someone or, or some people, we don't know if it's one or multiple, um, they had a problem with the clip that I played. And so there was a complaint or complaints. Uh, I asked, you know, how many people? And, and can I see the complaint? Can I know the content of it? Just so I know exactly what the problem was. Um, no, I was told I can't. So I'm just gonna have to take their word for it that, that something went wrong. Um, and so I was told that by playing a clip uh, from public television in the classroom, I had created a toxic climate, an unsafe learning environment. Um, the video I played was threatening. I targeted trans folks. I violated three policies. Um, so one was Bill C-16 itself. So by presenting criticism of C-16, uh, you're violating C-16. Um, also the Ontario Human Rights Code. These two were kind of debunked. Um, but I did violate the university's gendered and sexual violence policy for transphobia. I actually did violate it. Um, though the president did later admit that it was an overreach and they need to review the policy. But, um, but most shockingly, perhaps, um, I was told that by playing that clip neutrally and not denouncing Peterson's views, this was akin to neutrally playing a speech by Hitler. <laughs> and so it was my, my neutrality that was the problem. And um, if, you if you're familiar a bit with my story, though, you'll know that one major thing kind of changed the narrative here, and it's that I secretly recorded this meeting and I released it to the media. Has anyone listened to it by a show of hands? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's um, 42 minutes of um, cringeworthy content. If you, you Google my name, <laughs> Lindsay Shepard Audio, if you have some time tonight, want to have some fun, you'll hear me um, crying, basically. <laughs> um, but... I think, um, yeah, I, I received an apology from the professor and the president, but I think um, what's particularly interesting about this situation is the outcry and the activism that happened as a result. Um, so one thing is, for example, a, a professor named Greg Bird. Um, he, so he first came on my radar, not only because he's a professor in my own department, but because he wrote an op-ed for the local paper. And he said that um, the campus had become unsafe uh, as a result of the free speech debate that was occurring. Um, so, you know, the debate had, had opened up, so that was unsafe. And he, he asks in his op-ed, this is a direct phrase, is freedom of speech more important than the safety and well-being of our society? So he sees free speech and societal well-being as mutually exclusive, and you just can't have both. You have to choose one. Um, and so he... and. His example of the campus being unsafe, um, because you'll know that when people make these claims of feeling unsafe, often they actually don't really point to an exact example. Um, but he did, which I give him credit for. He said that he was receiving rants on his voicemail and email um, from angry members of the public. And I, t I talked to a journalist about this because um, she noticed that that op-ed too, and she said, well, that's just a normal Tuesday for me, is <laughs> listening to the rants on my voicemail. 
Um, like if you're putting your opinions out there, um, people are gonna talk back to you probably. Um, <laughs> uh, then, I, there was a free speech rally that was held in my name, um, just kind of in the midst of everything that was happening. And uh, one professor from the Department of Communications, so they seem to, I mean, you can see a theme, like they're, it's kind of this hub of people who have major issues. Um, <laughs> uh, so the free speech rally happened, um, and this professor, Jonathan Finn, he, he told students in the Department of Communication do not come to class the day of the free speech rally because it will not be safe. The campus will not be safe. Um, and, but I think maybe what we need to understand about people like him is they genuinely believe that free speech supporters, anyone who cares about it, are alt-right neo-Nazis who will storm his office with torches, right? They, he, he probably really thinks that, um, so I guess we shouldn't be too hard on him. Um, and then, also, as a result of that free speech rally, I mean, uh, there was one activist from, from the LGBTQ Center, and he and others were claiming that there was a spike in transphobic violence that was directly related um, to the free speech rally. And, and yeah, you have to question their use of violence because also playing a debate with, with Jordan Peterson is violence, it's epistemic violence. Um, so he was saying that there was a spike in violence, um, but, m you know, myself and a lot of other people in the media were, were concerned, obviously. We don't, like, I don't want anyone getting physically assaulted or anything. Um, and so the media looked into it and asked the police department, you know, what kind of reports have you been getting? And there was nothing. Um, and then they asked him, they asked him in a, in a news article, you know, you can read it, um, you know, can you, can you provide proof of the things that are happening to the members of your center? And he said that um, he doesn't have to provide proof because he doesn't have to perform his trauma. Um, so you're, you're allowed to directly connect violence with you know, a rally that I spoke at, but then when we ask you to back it up, um, you don't have to perform your trauma. And, and there's a lot of other interesting things. Is, is my time up? Has it been 10 minutes? Pretty much. We'll get, we'll have more time. Yes, there's there's a lot more, so stay tuned. <laughs> there, unfortunately, there is a lot more. <laughs> um, that was that was terrific. Thank you very much. Um, everybody here, okay with epist epistemic violence? Is that, do you do you all know what that means? Uh, good. Uh, you can tell me. Um, it's, I guess it's semantic violence or syntactic violence or violence caused by someone's words. Uh, it leads to, um, I suppose, invisible bruises. Um, our, next, our next speaker is Claire Lehman. She's the editor and founder of Quillette, an online journal that dares to challenge conventional wisdom. She's a psychologist, a writer, and one of the recognized leaders of the intellectual dark web. Please welcome Claire Lehman. Thank you, Stephen, and thanks, Lindsay, for sharing your account. It's an honor to share a platform with you. Okay, so I've been paying attention to the pages that Facebook has been removing from their platform due to them being linked to Russian trolls. And I, I've, I've found, I've been paying attention, and, and one 
one page was called Resistors, which posted anti-racist, pro-feminist, uh, anti-fascist um, memes. Another page was called Black Elevation, which was like a replica of a Black Lives Matter page. Um, they promoted the counter-protest to the Unite the Right rally, which recently happened in Washington. So um, Russian trolls were pushing the anti-fascist uh, agenda on Facebook. And Facebook has taken these pages down because of uh, political interference. Now, what I want to know is why are the Russians wasting their rubles <laughs> when the academics within Western <laughs> universities are doing the job for them? <laughs> um, a concept that has become quite popular in academia and on campus is this concept of the microaggression. It's a uh, it's an unintentional slight that can hurt a person, but the intention of the speaker is irrelevant. This concept has come out of critical race theory and whiteness studies. <laughs> now, if you don't know what whiteness studies is, it is taught at Melbourne University, so it is here in Australia. It's not just an American phenomenon. Um, it, it teaches concepts such as white privilege, white fragility, toxic whiteness, it teaches this idea that race is entirely a social construct and whiteness is at the apex of a hierarchy and every, everything in society has to be aimed at dismantling that hierarchy. So the president of the American Socio Sociological Association, Edward Bonilla Silva, is the leading proponent of whiteness studies and he has coined a concept called colorblind racism. So his <laughs> idea or theory is that colorblindness, that is Martin Luther King's vision of not judging people by the color of their skin, he considers that to be racist and considers that to be uh, a barrier to a truly racially equal society. He calls openly for equality of outcomes, not just equality of opportunity. And um, yeah, this is now, this is at Melbourne University, unfortunately, under whiteness studies. I saw in the news, I think it was this year or last year, that academics teaching whiteness studies at Melbourne University wanted to make whiteness studies a compulsory component of all training for nurses and doctors in Victoria. So this is, how it, this is how it gets into the institutions. They, uh, you know, it's a it has to be a compulsory component of a law degree or a teaching degree or a health or medical degree. A couple of papers in whiteness studies include, I looked these up on the weekend, the psychosis of whiteness. The abstract said, whiteness is a form of psychosis framed by its irrationality, which is beyond any rational engagement. Another paper was called Unpacking Desensitization, Whiteness and Violence. The authors of this paper asked themselves, why didn't they empathize with the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre or the Boston Marathon bombings? The conclusion of the paper was because the victims were white. Critical whiteness studies can be found uh, in the Oxford Education Encyclopedia. It's taught at Harvard. It's taught at all of the Ivy League universities in the United States. So why does this matter? 
Students who get inculcated into this ideology graduate and enter the professions and enter the media and enter corporations. Uh, I think one result of this kind of toxic identity politics impacting on an institution can be found in the story of Google. Google is currently being sued by a Republican lawyer defending on behalf of uh, white males. They're being accused of discriminating against white males in their organisation. Uh, this was after the sacking of James Damore. Um, the evidence that has been presented in this lawsuit documents uh, gratuitous, derogatory, inflammatory language used against white men on message boards and just throughout the organisation. Um, so, oh, some examples. Um, senior managers froze the head counts of white and Asian, Asian males in order to promote uh, diversity candidates. Um, white men were told to decline invitations to speak on panels. Um, when interviewing candidates for positions, the interviews were preloaded with diversity questions before the technical questions. So if you didn't pass the ideological litmus test, you never got into the meaty stuff that the position is ostensibly about. For this kind of ideology to become harmful to companies, to public institutions, to broader society, it does not need to be held by a majority. It only needs a motivated minority to hold these views. And th what happens is that the majority acquiesce to the fixed fanatical minority. You can take the analogy of primary schools. You cannot take peanuts onto a primary school because there'll be one or two kids in each classroom who are allergic to peanuts. You only need a tiny minority who have fixed, or, or fixed values or fixed demands and the majority end up acquiescing. So I think this is what we're seeing in universities. We're seeing in uh, companies like Google. There's a tiny minority, but they are very stubborn and very determined to get their way. And then the majority of people who are moderates, who are apolitical in a way, acquiesce to their demands. So. Going back to um, why this matters, a, the New York Times recently appointed a new member to its editorial board, a woman called Sarah Jong, graduate of Harvard and Berkeley. Um, it created a controversy because people went through her tweet history and she has years and years of tweets with uh, inflammatory hashtags such as hashtag kill all men, hashtag cancel white people, hashtag white people are bullshit and so on. There is an asymmetry. So micro, there are microaggressions that white people can commit or uh, men can commit against women, but these rules are not reciprocated. So people who determine themselves as being part of a, a special victim group minority don't have to reciprocate with the same rules of courtesy and uh, politeness. So I see this asymmetry in, in rules. One group of people uh, are protected by microaggressions and um, we have to be exquisitely attuned to the, the feelings and needs of certain groups and other, other people just have to cop it with the hashtags 
kill all men. I see that as extremely damaging to a harmonious civil society. Um, civil principles are supposed to be recipro reciprocal. I treat you fairly, you treat me fairly. When we erode that with these ideas of privilege, toxic whiteness, toxic masculinity, when we group people according to their identity and then place them on a hierarchy where certain members of groups are, are morally more um, pure and other groups have to atone for sins of the past, I think that sets up a really dangerous uh, environment for civil society. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Claire. That, that was excellent. You see what a, an educational institution this is. You've now learned about epistemic violence, and now you've learned about microaggressions. <laughs> I learned about it the other day. Someone said that you can't really start a sentence with, as you know, because that's a microaggression against people who don't know anything. So <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a, I'm a professor at Melbourne University. I didn't know we had a course like that. I think my, poor Martin Luther King will be up in heaven shaking his head in dismay. Um, our, our next speaker is Tiffany Jenkins. She's an author, academic, broadcaster, and consultant on cultural policy. <laughs> Tiffany's book, Keeping Their Marbles, How Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay There, was published in 2016 to great critical acclaim. And she's next. Tiffany. As a white woman, no, that's a different talk. <laughs> in 1964, at the University of California, Berkeley, student protesters were hauled off campus in handcuffs by the police. They were then protesting a ban on political activities on campus. It was a really, I think, exciting time. It was the birth of the free speech movement that would be the mold for student protests for the rest of the 60s that would take in support for the civil rights movement, and take a stand against the Civil War. It was a really different time then for free speech. In 1969, in the case Brandenburg versus Ohio, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, defended the First Amendment rights. Just think about this. They defended the First Amendment rights of a Ku Klux Klan leader, prosecuted for addressing a small rally calling for revengeance against blacks and Jews. They defended him in a shocking and quite remarkable case. The US Supreme Court reversed the Klan leader's Clarence Brandenburg's <coughs> conviction, narrowly defining incitement to violence as speech both intended and likely to cause imminent harm and illegal action. So Brandenburg made an essential distinction between advocacy and action, which activists today who equate hate speech with a discrimination or words they do not like, which causes them the feelings of harm, seek to erase. For today, it's a really different story. And we're only talking about 40 years here, but quite a lot has happened. On campuses, you see campaigns against free speech, the banning and the non-inviting of speakers that may challenge orthodoxies or just run foul of the most sensitive student. You see all kinds of disciplines, especially the humanities, subject to some kind of health warning, 
the trigger warning where you apologize in advance and warn students that say they want to read The Great Gatsby, they'd better be careful because after all it deals with themes such as suicide, domestic violence, adultery. You also hear of microaggressions, which Claire touched upon, which is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal behavioral indignities, which, as she said, crucially, are not necessarily intended, but they are unintended. And Tom mentioned at the beginning how this has been kind of rampaging through the academy for decades, but I think microaggressions are what's new and perhaps the most damaging, because I think it causes kind of people just to second guess everything they say to each other. So in kind of the everyday informality of how we deal with each other, we have to tiptoe around. And, you know, I don't know about you, but my friends, colleagues all say that they do do this. And it kind of is paralyzing. Um, you also have, obviously, the concerns about cultural appropriation, which is kind of do not look at a sari and wear it because you are appropriating somebody else's culture. So this concerns speech, thought, everyday behavior and respecting and enjoying other people's cultures. So what I want to do today, I mean, we could rant forever, couldn't we? But I would like to try and do three things. One is to identify a little bit further what's distinctive about it, uh, how it happened, where, where this has all come from, and uh, sort of reinforce some of Claire points, Claire's points and take it further in terms of why it matters and what, as Lenin would say, what is to be done. So what is distinctive about the free speech issue? Well, the present-day advocacy against free speech is a reversal of some of those positions taken early in the 1960s and indeed earlier. Free speech was fought for. It had to be fought for for a long time. And then it was students fighting for it, often with faculty against officials at the university. In broader society, free speech was fought for against the government because traditionally censorship was top-down. And now it's bottom up. And I think one of the other interesting things about it is that it often doesn't announce itself as censorship. Um, they both celebrate it when it's removed, free speech, um, but also slightly deny it. They call it protection. It's remarkable how many people calling for limits on free speech say that they are not censors. A distinctive feature of the campaigns today is the association of freedom of expression with the infliction of emotional injury what uh, Lindsay was talking about. A feature of the protests or agitation today is not, I disagree with you, but I feel, I feel harmed, you threaten me. I feel distressed by what you may or may not say. And with feelings, the discussion is entirely shut down because when somebody disagrees with you or if they object to the content, at least you can have a conversation with them about that content. Um, the ACLU, who I referred to earlier, has just endured the view that free speech can harm marginalized groups by undermining their civil rights. And this is what they say. And this is the ACLU who defended that Klan member uh, in 1969. They now say speech that denigrates such groups can inflict serious harms and is intended to and often will impede progress towards equality. I think that's a really big and important shift. So censorship in the past was often what was morally unacceptable. Now it's what is psychologically disturbing, as defined by the beholder, as defined by the subject. So Lady Chatterley's Lover, which I'm sure you've all read, was banned because you wouldn't want your wife and servant reading about, well, sex with a common gardener. 
public obscenity laws said it would, quote, deprave and corrupt readers. And now The Great Gatsby is still read, but you have a trigger, around it, trigger warning around it because of the themes of adultery may cause emotional distress. So where has this come from? Um, I want to talk about three developments that I think are really important in the university context. The first, and I think this is, I don't think we can underestimate how important this is. I think it is a crisis of purpose for it within institutions. So the university for some time has not been fully committed to the pursuit of knowledge, truth, beauty. Um, you can see it from the very top of the university structure to special classes on whiteness. But I mean, I'm a sociologist, and one of the key texts is Durkheim's suicide. And that, in some cases, isn't taught, or there's a trigger warning around it. The humanities, for, for some time, has been dominated by critical theory, which seeks to find hidden meanings in the text and ask students to deconstruct meanings. And I think that means the academy is uncomfortable unconfident, hesitant in upholding academic freedom or the integrity of the disciplines. And therefore, it can be hijacked for all sorts of purposes. Um, most recently, it, now, it no longer pursues truth. It seeks to have a duty of care for students. So they are responsible for their safety. And I'll come back to the point about safety in a minute. The second point, um, and I say this as uh, somebody who grew up with the left, I loved the left for a while. Um, but I think actually that time in the 60s is a really crucial, crucial time because you have initially, I think, um, they're very much animated and rightly so by ideas of social transformation and reform. Um, and it's a key turning point when the left moves away from trying to change society through economic improvement, material progress towards transforming culture. And key is that old phrase, the personal is political. So let's change people and how they behave in private, uh, the words that they use, rather than, I don't know, give them a little bit more money, um, help workers fight for better working conditions. So the left no longer critiques state power, and this is why I think it's a fundamentally conservative move, but ordinary people. And so the third development is safety. Um, students today who come to university have been brought up in a culture of risk aversion where basically from a child, in fact, in fact, before they're even born, the mother is being lectured on what they can eat. <laughs> so before it's even out of the womb, they're being coddled. Um, and it's come to be almost like a social value. My stepson um, was taking some exams at university. And his first response to stress, which is an entirely normal thing to be stressed about, uh, exams, these things matter, was to go to the doctor and be prescribed some sort of uh, beta blockers to calm him down. And I think students are encouraged to see ordinary challenges as a problem that is either, that is helped by drugs or counseling, rather than something that they have to learn to deal with. I mean, they are encouraged to do that, so is it any wonder that they demand that the university protect them and uh, treat them safely? And I think that keys into the way in which the victim has tremendous moral authority today. And I'm not surprised that people sort of compete. I, you know, I think we probably almost find ourselves doing it ourselves, because it's an 
easy get-out sometimes. I didn't do this, I didn't achieve that because, well, I had a bad childhood or I, I felt vulnerable. It, the, there was a man, there was a white man who put me down. So there is a kind of, <laughs> we all want to find excuses for why it didn't work out for us. Um, so children are encouraged to deflate emotional harm, to find difficulties in ordinary life, to effectively remain children. So why, I mean, I think we know why it matters, but let's just dwell on that. Um, scholarship and teaching is hampered. There are questions that are not asked within the academy. There are discussions that are not held, uh, just for fear of saying the wrong thing. Fundamentally, the values of the safe space contradict those of the university, which is a no-holds-barred pursuit of truth. And one that is universalistic, so students are encouraged to identify as trans or whatever, whatever identity it may be, rather than as a scholar, as a chemist, as a sociologist. And that kind of universality um, is eroded. It's entirely conformist, um, and you see the cultivation of continued offence-seeking and feeling. People are rewarded for being fragile. Um, Claire made a really important point about minorities. I think the people who are incredibly influential in the activist groups are a minority, but few people are speaking out against them. And I think that relates to the few points I want to make now about what is to be done. The problem is not always the behavior of those small group of activists, although they're tedious, um, but the absence of a confident opposition. Um, and I think we need to rediscover the pursuit of knowledge, the love of learning, the love of literature and sociology, dare I say it as a sociologist, remake the university. Now, it's either done within the university or out with the university. I think we can explore both options. Um, expose the problem. Challenge those seeking offence. Provide a sensible language in which to confront it. In my experience, many students are bemused I think that lecturers are actually the most cowardly, but the students, they're bemused and they keep their heads down. But we need to, as adults, show them that they don't have to do, do that, that we can kind of challenge this and question this and want to show them that what matters is not their identity or victimhood, but their accomplishments as a scholar or a student. We need to ask more of them and of, the, of, of ourselves. I think we need to encourage everyone to, um, and I can say this as a woman, to grow some balls. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, my last recommendation is a book. I read it recently, and so I've been recommending it wherever I go. It is a book called Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books, and it's by the Iranian author and professor Azar Nafisi. It's written in about 2000, and it's of her experience when living in the Islamic Republic of Iran in the 1980s after she was dismissed from the university for refusing to wear the veil, she secretly brought together seven female students in her living room every Thursday morning. This was so they could read and discuss forbidden classic works of Western literature. So they, the books were considered anti-revolutionary and morally harmful by the Iranian authorities. So they put themselves at risk to read The Great Gatsby without a trigger warning. Uh, Henry James, Nabokov, uh, Jane Austen, and she did that under those conditions when she really was at risk. So I think, given that, we should take inspiration to return to the great works of literature and challenge ourselves and the limits we put on ourselves. Thank you.
Has everyone got a microphone? No, there's one between them. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions, then we're going to go to the audience. And um, the well, first one was uh, on Monday night's Q&A program, the one that Lindsay was on, um, there was a question from a member of the audience. He was wearing a turban, or he must be a Sikh, and he referred to his turban in, in the question. And he asked whether people should have the right, or why should they have the right, to offend, insult, humiliate, or intimidate people because of their race or, or ethnicity. And he was quoting from Section 18C of the Australian Human Rights Act. How would you reply? I'm going to save Lindsay because she's already heard this question. But yeah, why don't you strike? How would you reply to this man? Well, I think one person's hate speech is another person's good idea. Um, I also think it's okay to hate. I mean, I think there's a difference between hate and action. But I think fundamentally it's about how we see ourselves. It's about the audience. Um, the idea that you cannot hear something uh, is, a, is, a, is an insult. I think everybody in this room can hear something hateful and think they're wrong. Um, I don't believe that and argue back. I think the counter to everything that you hear that's undesirable or nasty is to counter it with more speech. Want to have a go? Sure, yeah, I would just say that a society in which you can have your most uh, precious and sacred feelings hurt is the only society that you want to live in. And the although it's not nice to be insulted and to be to have uh, someone criticizing you, uh, the op not having that freedom is much, much worse. Your turn. Oh, I thought I was immune from this no, one. No, no. I, I said you've had more time to think about it than anyone. I have to relive it. No. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, I don't have anything to add. I, I just, um, that whole Q&A was very traumatizing and I'd rather not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got counselors in the audience no, for you. So. I, need, I need some mental health There's initiatives. <laughs> The, um, does free speech require that everyone be permitted to speak on campus? Um, is there a real philosophical or ethical or moral theory that says that everyone who has some sort of divergent idea has an equal right? For example, are universities obligated to allow anti-vaccine speakers to speak on campus? What do you think? Um, well, I have a club that um, brings speakers to campus. And you know, there I definitely wouldn't bring an anti-vaccine vaccine speaker. Um, they've actually reached out to me and asked if they could come speak. Um, same with like flat Earth. Um, what else? Holocaust denial. Like I just that doesn't add anything to public discourse for me. So I, you know, I wouldn't invite those people. Um, and I think the student club leaders need to, because it's generally, or maybe faculty members bring in people too, but. Um, it's up to their discretion, really, but I think once someone is invited, they, they shouldn't be shouted down. I think it's actually more powerful when, when you have someone speak and barely anyone shows up. Like, like that Unite the Right to rally, like isn't it tragic when, <laughs> I mean, we don't want a Unite the Right rally, but like when you see only 20 people show up, it's like, that's actually so much more damaging to you. Yeah, I've heard arguments about um, inviting provocative provocateurs onto campus and, and some people have suggested that they're not offering um, intellectual 
discourse and therefore shouldn't be allowed onto campus or shouldn't be invited. But I would say that in in an environment where um, the, there is such little political diversity on campus, just being contrarian is going to offer students so something of value. And I don't... I can't imagine students inviting an anti-vaxxer to university, but if they did, it would be a good way for students to um, look at the propaganda that is used, deconstruct it, analyse it, you know, that you can always find something of value. Uh, you don't have to agree with people. <laughs> um, we, can, we, can, we can disagree and, and we should try, be trying to bring a culture of disagreement back, I think. They have no obligation, but I think these are, these are universities. These are meant to be some of the brightest, smartest, engaged people in the country. And if they can't handle that debate, then who can? I think they almost have a responsibility. Now, one of these ideas are influential. You have to take them on. The anti-vaccine thing is influential. Um, in some countries, actually, the anti-Holocaust, the, the denial of the Holocaust is influential. How do you deal with that? You expose it, you engage, you, you engage in rational conversation. So I think in a way universities have a greater obligation. Um, we're talking about speakers on campus. Would they have the same obligation for, for staff? I mean, the, um, there's a free country and everyone here can have whatever opinion they would like to have. Uh, they can believe that the earth is flat, but I don't have to give them a chair in geography, do I? That they, well, if geography, I mean, they, they have to have expertise exactly. and there's peer review and accountability, that's intellectual right. accountability. Isn't that important for a university? That's important, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> so we can agree on that. <laughs> you could, um, there's, a, there's a no platform movement, meaning don't give people a platform to uh, produce their awful ideas, whatever they might be. Uh, because they're too dangerous, and you've heard about that from the three speakers already, this whole idea of dangerous. M my question to them, this is my last one, and then I'll go to the, to the audience, Are there, is there any topic that's too dangerous to be talked about? Um, I don't, I'd like to say no. Um, I'm struck in Britain, where we do have a problem with radical Islam, that it is not discussed at universities. Um, and the reason why I think that's a real problem is that, the, for me, the interest in radical Islam is much a kind of problem of internal, uh, a kind of a, not being able to inspire uh, people within our own communities, within our own country. And so I think it's vital that we sometimes, we do take that on. Nobody will touch it, but I think it's absolutely essential. Anyone else? I think in, in some very specific circumstances you could argue that some knowledge should be kept to the experts. I mean, you don't want to be publishing manuals on how to make, build weapons and things like that. Uh, so, for, and, na and, and secrets around national security. But we have protocols and policies to, to keep that kind of knowledge locked away anyway. Anything that's of intellectual uh, anything that a topic that's of intellectual debate or philosophical debate should be up for discussion. Thank you. Yeah, I can't think of anything that would be too dangerous. I just think, like what I was saying before, what actually adds value um, for the students? And you know, the the students are oftentimes bringing in the speakers, 
And um, you know, these are still university students. They're they're not dumb. Like they they can have good judgment sometimes, although I know standards really are lowering drastically to get into university. So I mean, maybe that might change. But but for now, we can maybe trust their judgment as in, like to who they want to bring to campus. Thanks very much. Now it's your turn. Um, questions and comments uh, from the gallery. Um, I'm going to give the first to the boss. So well, Tom, you go first. In, this, in the spirit of dissent and provocation, <laughs> let me put you on the spot here and say that your critics, and I've had many friends and former colleagues at universities around the world, many of them will say that you are overstating the problem to which you've just been referring, that this is a tiny minority of activists and radicals, that the broad mainstream on campus, whether they be students or academics, are actually quite ordinary and they recoil from this nonsense. And many of these people, my friends would argue that campus radicalism, for instance, was more extreme half a century ago. In the, in the late 60s and early 70s, university campuses all around the Western world had protests and violence and whatnot. If you walk around Sydney University campus, there's no violence, there's no protests, really. So question, are you overstating the case? Is there epistemic well, it definitely is a, a minority, definitely. The radicals are a minority. But the thing is, how I see it just from being a student is um, the vast majority of students on campus are totally disengaged. They don't do their readings. They barely come to class. Um, they don't care about anything. Um, they just want to pass with the lowest grade they can get. And so they don't really care what happens. And even if you were at the Wilfrid Laurier campus during all the media stuff going on with me, um, you could probably go up to a lot of students and they would just have no idea what was going on. Um, and that's, oops, that's why um, the, the minority is so powerful. <laughs> um, it's true, it's, it's, a, it's a noisy minority, but they have power. Um, and we are already seeing the the results of that power in institutions such as media, uh, companies such as Google. Um, Google is the biggest, one of the biggest technology companies in the world and they're being sued for discriminating against white men and the evidence is quite, quite shocking when you go through it. I was recently in San Francisco and I spoke to young entrepreneurs who talk about walking on eggshells in their own companies yeah. which they founded because they have to hire engineers who come out of Berkeley and Berkeley is a very extremely left-leaning institution and all it takes is one engineer to uh, be offended by something that is said in the work environment and time will be wasted, money will be spent and these are startups. They don't have time and money to waste. You can see the impact in Australia with, through the corporate world with all of this virtue signaling on diversity and inclusion and implicit bias training. Implicit bias training doesn't have any solid scientific evidence backing it up. You can go and ask the psychologists who developed the test and they will say it should not be used on individuals to measure bias but it's being used in companies across the land. It's being used by Law Society in New South Wales because of social responsibility. So these ideas have impact. 
they waste money. They waste people's time. Waste people's times. And then the focus on identity is not doesn't uh, facilitate social harmony. If we're constantly thinking about our skin colour or our gender, that drives us apart. It doesn't bring us together. Uh, so I would just say it's, it's a big problem. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about it is that it doesn't announce itself in the way that censorship used to, but it has seeped into our everyday lives. How we, we deal with each other, that kind of second-guessing, seeing each other through the prism of difference. Um, and I think it encourages people to, to see each other as harmful, which is the most debilitating and divisive thing. And if anybody wants to change society in any way, um, that hampers it, but it also hampers how we interact with each other. And I'm struck by how people now keep to their own groups and how they keep to their own political groups, gender groups, and see each other as a threat. That is paralyzing. Thank you very much. Um, now, other questions. Here's one right here. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm struck by the irony of three women defending white male privilege. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we do want you to apologize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a, um, a little comment. You, with the education system that um, um, our previous Prime Minister, John Howard, introduced with funding, I don't see that education is going to be changing. They're strapped for cash and they, this is their inflow of money. Yesterday we had, you mentioned the Islamic issue. I could not believe what I heard on television with this Anning comment about immigration. It wasn't his comments or anything, that's a guy. It was the politician's response that really got my goat and made me feel that all I heard was hate speech, this, that and the other and no ability to communicate, no ability to discuss sweeping this issue under the carpet, dividing, creating radicalism. I don't see the, the answers coming from universities. I see them, we're all taking our cues from everyone else. And we got this from politicians yesterday. What's, wh how do we actually break this down? I think the th one of the things that becomes clear is that if you don't challenge those with whom you disagree, your intellectual muscles get really weak. Um, you become less able to discuss those ideas. And in fact, if anybody wants to convince somebody of their point of view, they really have to know the, their opponent's argument. Um, you have a kind of responsibility to do that. And I think that's, that's the only thing you can argue for. Is it going to happen in universities? I'd like to think so. Uh, but I, um, I'm not betting on it. I genuinely think we need to set up different universities, um, actually, and encourage people to take the ideals of the old academy out. Um, I, I tend to think that we currently place too much stock in politics and politicians in general, and we need to find answers for life's big problems outside of politics. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jordan Peterson has gotten such traction because, I mean, he, is, he does have a political message, but most of his message is about finding meaning and purpose in your life outside of politics. And um, I think, you know, we live in a secular country and, and religion is on the, on, the, on the decline. And filling that vacuum is politics to a large extent. And we need to... We need to 
find ways to get it out of that, to, to stop focusing so much on 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 politics to, to give up give us meaning in our lives. I, I don't think there are too many Australians who would expect our politicians to give us meaning. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wouldn't think that's a widespread problem. <laughs> I think something important that you noted was how universities are strapped for cash. It's the same in Canada. And this leads to a lot of problems. And it, it, for me, it's actually related to the um, flourishing of identity politics in universities because it's very easy to take a class. For example, I took a class on race and media. It's very easy to get a good grade when all you have to do is find racism in something because it's really easy. Um, I, you know, there's a movie called Lucy from I think 2014 stars Scarlett Johansson. She's a white woman in an Asian country and I can't remember the plot. But I, I studied that movie for my term paper for that course and I got a really good grade just by pointing out like, oh, it's a white woman in an Asian country. And like, like it's, it's really easy. Um, and then the al also the other thing, and I think perhaps it's happening here, is um, you get an influx of international students because they pay in Canada triple the tuition. And I did my bachelor's in, in communication and we had tons of international students at where the place where I did my undergraduate degree. I think um, in 2011, it was 45% of students were not native English speakers. Um, and in my Bachelor of Communication program, a lot of people just frankly couldn't write or speak in English. They, they could not communicate, so, yeah. Uh, that's reassuring. Um, <laughs> uh, in the, right, have you got, Oh, I'm supposed to choose them. What is oh, I'm yeah. that, that, That's okay. Uh, I can't see you. <laughs> you light in my eye. As a politician, I'd like to fill the vacuum. <laughs> and make uh, our lives meaningful? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, it's uh, ironic, of course, that there, as the previous uh, questioner uh, identified, that there are no males on this uh, panel. Um, but anyway, that's... I uh, fail to see the irony. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to... Uh, what, what, I, what I fail to do in relation to this whole discussion is, is that we've identified a significant problem. Um, and I think we've been identified in the problem for the last 10 years. I'm not convinced that you've identified the way forward. Um, I'd be, I'd be pleased if you'd sort of just uh, turn your mind to sort of say, I'm a new student starting at a university now. I'm convinced that I want to achieve the best possible grades that I can. How do I go about that without aligning myself with the politically correct uh, identities which pervade universities now? Because universities are really a, a lost cause in many respects, and maybe you've identified that we need to start again. Uh, and I think that's a problem if we do need to start again because of all the funding issues and all that sort of stuff that goes with starting a new enterprise. But I'm not convinced that you've identified tonight the way forward. What's the way forward, panel? You can um, sign up to Colette, yeah. <laughs> become a patron. No, in seriousness, a, a lot of us are trying to build intellectual spaces online and um, we, we try to have serious thoughtful, complex discussions on difficult topics. Um, and there is, a, there is a, a quite a robust community of us who, who are scattered all over the world, but we come together to talk about things that you would have ordinarily talked about in a university tutorial setting, but we can't anymore, so we talk about it online. And the, the wonderful thing is how we catch so many young people in this net. 
And we, um, for example, on Quillette, we publish undergraduate students. They get uh, their essays edited by professional editors. They get um, people like Steven Pinker and Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris reading their work and giving feedback. So I think, I think, I mean, universities, they're an institution, but institutions die. And we ha but we have to carry on the spirit of learning and the values of Western civilization and the love of learning and books. And, and that's all we can really do, is just to keep that flame burning. Yes, there's a responsibility we have to scholarship um, and there's a responsibility we have to the younger generation. And I think that means having our eyes wide open and not telling, you know, I would, I would not necessarily encourage people to go to university anymore. Um, as an individual choice, you know, fine. But they're not going to learn. They're not going to be challenged. They're not going to be learned. They're not going to learn. So it sounds, that sounds negative, but I think we have to expect more of ourselves. And I think the, I genuinely think there's a, these are quite exciting times where people have had enough, and they've had enough from all different political persuasions, and they want something better. I think you can see that actually in the political domain. I'm more, I'm more optimistic than, and positive actually about politics. I think people say want, they want something more. Treat me with respect. Um, Quillette, I think, has captured some of that and shown that there, there are other, other ways. And I think we have to have high expectations. I know that's not the politician's answer, but I think there is, there is, these are pos there, there are times, these are times when it is possible to be optimistic and honest. What do you think, Lindsay? Um, for me, it's about getting a critical mass of people um, who will speak out. But I think when you look at my situation, for example, it's not very inspiring to other students to speak out in the way I did because, like, you know, other students were publishing op-eds in student papers and local papers saying, I played hate speech in my classroom. Um, I, I am actively silencing trans voices. I'm a transphobe. Um, I committed gendered violence. These are students saying these things. Um, there was an open letter that was uh, in our student newspaper as like a letter to the editor, and it was signed by concerned students of Wilfrid Laurier who wanted to remain anonymous due to fear of retribution or whatever. Um, <laughs> and they said that my s m me playing a Jordan Peterson clip in the class was um, clear white supremacist posturing. <laughs> I just really didn't get it. Um, you know, your, your race will get attacked too, which is something that was really new to me. Um, so there was an episode where they actually examined the whole situation on the agenda with Steve Pakin, which is the show I played in my classroom, so it got kind of meta. Um, but they were discussing it on that show, and there was um, a black professor at the University of Toronto who is the director of Women and Gender Studies as well. And he said that um, he was sure that in this situation, so my situation, um, so for context, my supervising professor was not a white male, it was a brown male named Professor Rambucana. And this black professor on the show said that he was sure this in this situation, I was a white TA who was trying to undermine a professor of color. And it's like, are you serious? Like, are you trying to say that if the professor was white, things would have been different? Because you're really wrong on that, right? Um, we keep referring to the university, but isn't this really a matter for the zany social sciences? I mean, it, are, are the physics and chemistry people worried about whatever it is that we're talking about tonight? I don't know. The, 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 there is still integrity in, in the hard sciences. The, the, 
the closer you get to reality, the more your experiments have to prove something about the world, the less delusional you can become. Um, but I, ha I have to say that I'm disappointed in uh, scientists on the whole because they have, they have the toolkit, the intellectual toolkit and the methodology to destroy postmodernists and destroy these um, activist scholars and they haven't. I know that a handful have tried. Alan Circle, who the physicist of the so-called hoax, he published back in the 90s, he published this fake um, postmodernist paper. And that was meant to be him getting, he, he talked about the social construction of gravity. And this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this paper was published in, um, I think it was called Social Text Postmodernist Journal. And that was meant to be the kill shot. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. They, you cannot embarrass these people. You cannot shame them. <laughs> It, it, it's an anti-fragile uh, epistemology. Um, so I, I, I have been disappointed that um, there's, there has been generation, a generation at least of scientists who haven't put up more of a fight. Um, but I, th I think now that the, ba the battle within the universities is lost and we have to move on. The thing about science is that it won't win the argument because it's it's methodology, it's science, and it, this this is as much about how we see ourselves, ordinary people. Are we capable? Are we rational? Are we? Can we understand each other and win arguments? So, in a sense, it has to be fought in the political realm as much as anywhere else. I also think, although the you know science can continue, it has been hindered and hampered by. Uh, certain priorities, and there are certain questions that are just off limits um, that we could also do with exposing. Thank you. Um, how about a question from this side of the room? Um, you've got a, uh, a microphone there. Here's someone patiently waiting. Um, oh, just hang on a second. I'll, I'll give you a mic. Oh, I've got a loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello. You know, this label of left, I come from a trades background, and the label left doesn't paint the picture that I would think everybody here gets when somebody uses that word, right? We all know what that is, okay? Um, we need a, a better label, I'll tell you. I mean, in, in common conversation, we need a better label because the mums and dads out there who never went for a university but have got a child that's going to go to uni and they're wanting to fund them, they don't understand this issue unless they're listening a lot um, and doing their own, you know, some homework. We need a, a, a label that gives us different understanding. What do you think? We need, a, we need a few scientists here to make the mics work, is what I think. Not working? <coughs> you mean political label? This label left. Mm. Everybody here understands what that means, but think about it. All my, the peer group that I grew up with, we used to say the word left, it doesn't paint the picture. It doesn't communicate what the problem is. And we're using it all the time, mostly, to describe this problem that you're probably experiencing. Well, I've experienced this, this mindset, right? And when I first came across it, not having a uni background, I, uh, my question was, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's my peer group, you know, that's what they're thinking. What is this? There's no common sense there. They don't understand it. They don't see the evil of it. They won't consider it as evil, and they won't react 
Well, I, I think we do need a new political language, which has to come through working together to find something that actually resonates. I think left and right no longer means what it used to mean. Um, some of that is exciting, actually, because you find yourself talking across political divisions that were once entrenched. Um, so I think things have been thrown up, and we need to find a, a kind of new political language. And it has to also be done with ordinary people. I'm really struck by all the new language um, that the social justice warriors, for want of a better expression, comes up with. And that they're, they're really, they're all those acronyms. And you mentioned LBGQ, and they just go on. And I think they're deliberately kind of obfuscatory. So they're deliberately withholding meaning from ordinary people. Um, so new political language, that means something. And actually, there's an opportunity for new political allegiances and alignments, which is quite a good thing, I think. Yeah, I, I, I believe that it's really important to separate out moderate leftists and sensible leftists from these cultists. Um, I, I mean, I, I Im when I write or am talking, I sometimes use the word progressive left. And then the social justice warriors, they're like the fundamentalists. So it's it, there's a spectrum of how um, how how much you subscribe to the faith, and the social justice warriors are like fundamental. It's like an evangelical evangelism, um, and that I don't think you can really get through to people like that. But we can certainly warn others of their impact. I I haven't come up with I don't have a better term than social justice warrior. Yeah. I agree that just saying left is unhelpful. Um, I know a professor who says politically correct totalitarians um, because she, she considers herself on the left. And I actually invited her to talk on campus back in May. And she did. She, um, she's from a university in Calgary, um, Alberta, Canada. And uh, so we were going to bring her to our campus and the university of Wilfrid Laurie University, they charged us um, $5,300 in security fees um, to host an academic on another university campus in Canada. And the reason why this professor, Frances Widowson, is um, controversial is because um, she was going to give a talk on does university indigenization threaten open inquiry? And so basically she's um, concerned that these indigenization programs, so pushing indigenous studies, for, examples, for example, is um, not actually helping the education gap with indigenous students because they should just go into programs where they would learn the same things everyone else would, not just traditional knowledge. Um, and so that's her concern is closing the education gap. She considers herself a Marxist socialist, yet the day she came to talk on campus, the Marxist socialists protested her. And she was on the she was facing them, yelling at them. They were yelling like, you know, justice for workers or whatever. Um, and then and then she was yelling across I agree with you, um, <laughs> but they were drowning her out with siren machines, like wee wee. So. <laughs> Thank you. The, the use of these security fees as a way of keeping people from endlessly uh, uh, debating over. Um, how about all in this corner here? We have someone. Yeah. Given that uh, postmodernists are epistemologically actually opposed to objective truth, rationality, and Socratic discourse. 
don't you think that liberalism actually has to adopt a different strategy to deal with it than it did with classic socialism, given that socialists of the past played by the same rules as liberals, and now they don't. Same logical rules. The same logical rules. Good question. What do you think? Good question. I don't think we have an answer for that. What I'm trying to do with Quillette is uh, provide a space where we do focus on objective truth. So you'll notice that in the New York Times, um, I haven't read the Sydney Morning Herald in a while, but um, <laughs> <laughs> probably, <laughs> the, I mean, you, you, need, you need to have the spaces where objective truth is your number one commitment. Your, that's your principle. And if it's not going to happen in universities, we just have to make sure we have healthy alternative institutions in the media. Uh, we need to establish study clubs, book clubs. Um, there's nothing, we can't kill postmodernism because it's anti-fragile. It keeps coming back. It's like a hydra, you know. <laughs> you kill it and it comes back. We can't get rid of it. We just have to make it unpopular and uncool so that kids don't become seduced by it, basically. Yeah. No, I'd agree. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think we'll get, we'll, we'll get someone else. Uh, I can't see. You have glasses here. There's, sorry, there's lights in my eyes. <laughs> I, um, I've noticed a lot of people who are generally opposed to um, government intervention in, in free market. Um, you know, companies uh, are recently calling for um, governments to treat uh, companies like YouTube and Facebook, Google, um, Twitter, um, to treat them like uh, public utilities because of the way that they're um, censoring and um, uh, you know, uh, silencing people and, and propping up um, uh, certain groups. Like the Young Turks is always on the recommended list and then Infowars has um, recently been um, unpersoned, or Alex Jones has recently been unpersoned when they're really sort of polar opposites of one another. Um, so I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that. If, have we got to the stage where that's a necessary measure to take? Um, is that it, would that be a good thing, or is there some alternative to that? I'm conflicted over that. I understand the concerns that people have about censorship on these large platforms, but I'm on the side of the uh, people creating the technology, and I don't think we need government. So the, the entrepreneurs in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and the people in Washington who want to regulate them, there's, there's a lot of tension. And we don't need to give the people in Washington more power, is my view. Um, but I understand the other side to that argument as well. Um, I mean, I don't think social media companies should be regulated by government. I don't want them doing it themselves either. I don't want Mark Zuckerberg deciding for me what is and what isn't fake news. I think the web is a tremendous space for free speech, and I would defend it. Um, to the to the well, I would defend it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the alternative if it's not regulation? You say no regulation. There you go. <laughs> that is my alternative. Um, yeah. did, did anyone else want to have a go at this? Um, look, we we really run out of time. I know there's a lot of people here who would still like to ask questions, but we're going to join you for some informal refreshments, and you can ask questions directly, uh, you are quite right to take this issue so seriously. 
And as you know, everyone believes in free speech in the abstract, but there's always a but. Um, <laughs> people equivocate. They say it's a question of how you strike the balance, where you draw the line. And that sounds pretty reasonable, right? Sounds real Canadian, in fact, to me. <laughs> um, but in reality, the whole point of free speech is to protect the ideas that you personally hate, right? And that means it's sometimes necessary to defend the rights of pretty awful people to say pretty awful things for the sake of the principles that help our society to survive. Now, as Robert Samuelson, who's a Washington Post journalist, wrote a very strong defense of free speech. He said it buttresses the political system's legitimacy. If you're a loser in, a, in, in an election and you don't have your success, you can accept your fate if you've had a chance to put your point of view. May not have won, but at least you've had the chance to make the fight. If you don't allow people to have their say, if you don't allow them to test, it doesn't mean they're suddenly gonna change their point of view. It means they're gonna look for a lot less civilized way of making their point than free speech. And there's always another election, so they can try again. Free speech underpins our largest concept of freedom, and for reminding us of this fact, I ask you to join me in thanking our panelists for tonight's I'm now going to call on my colleague Jeremy Samet from the CIS to offer a vote of thanks, which I think I just did. <laughs> Nothing like being the second banana, obviously. <laughs> We've heard a lot of new terms tonight, but one term that we didn't hear was PIC, or people of colour. I am what would be classified as a person of colour, and not surprisingly, so would my father. He was also a motor mechanic, and his nickname in the workplace was Dark Chap. And it made sense because it was a very white workplace and people would say, go over and talk to that dark chap. <laughs> to this day, he still refers to himself in the third person as the dark chap. <laughs> we didn't have microaggressions in our household. We had macroaggressions. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job to, sec to no, echo Stephen's thanks to all our speakers tonight. Um, as Tom said, I'm the head of the new uh, CIS uh, culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program, which is designed to just basically ensure that we are fully engaged in these key cultural battles of our times. And this means standing up for all these fundamental uh, principles that are at stake, free speech, academic freedom, religious liberty, which are under threat in this really polarised uh, and politically correct environment in which we unfortunately live. Tonight has been a number of events that we've had about universities over the last year and understandably so. Unfortunately, for the reasons we've heard tonight, um, a lot of the contemporary cultural rot has started in the universities. The universities have given up on the foundational idea of rational debate based on facts, logic, and evidence. And this all too often, as again we've heard tonight, has been replaced by reducing discussion of taboo subjects to the intolerant and accusatory language of identity politics. Now this is bad for our society, but it's also bad for the, for, our, for the future of our nation as a liberal democracy for the reasons that Stephen explained. Because if universities can't model and promote the behavior and values that democracy requires, 
which is debate and disagreement based on mutual respect of the fundamental freedoms of all, where are citizens going to learn those behaviours and values? These issues also really go to the heart of the role of a think tank like the CIS. Now, whether you support the CIS directly or not, and of course we encourage you all to do that, you've indirectly done so whether you like it or not. That's because the Australian taxpayer, and God bless them all, spent a lot of money on my university education. I was also fortunate enough to go to university before the rot really set in. And the scholarly methods that I learnt, I continue to apply every day in the work I do as a think tanker on whatever policy problem or social or, social or economic issue that I'm uh, working on. And the same goes for all my colleagues here. Now the CIS fundamentally believes in rational debate because if you don't have debates where ideas are contested based on facts, logic and evidence, you won't discover truth, you won't uncover cover errors and you'll inevitably end up with worse outcomes. And because we believe in debate, the CIS will continue to focus on what is happening in the universities as we've done tonight. And we'll continue to use forums such as this to put the pressure on university authorities to come up with a rational response that addresses the rot in these vitally important institutions. So I just want to thank the speakers tonight for sharing their experience, their knowledge and their wisdom to help us, help universities, help us all by rediscovering the pursuit of truth through rational debate. Please join me in thanking you. Jeremy, thank you and thank you too to Steve. That was terrific, a really wonderful night and also let me just reaffirm my thanks and praise for all of you today, Lindsay, Claire and Tiffany. Especially to Claire and Tiffany have come all the way from Canada and England respectively. Oh. <laughs> Canada and England, yeah. I, can I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Um, for those of you who uh, loathe and deplore those left-wing writers' festivals, and you still want your intellectual stimulation, CIS is for you. And if you recoil from those safe spaces and trigger warnings, uh, then CIS is for you. So we hope to see you again. Uh, we rely primarily on the support and generosity of our individual members. If you're not a member, please become one. Thank you all so much for being here. We hope to see you again. And please drink and be merry and mingle with our guests. Thanks so much.